good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Online and in person. In person, we have kids' church. We pray together. We worship together through song. We study God's Word together, the same uh, Bible study. And then online, of course, uh, we're video on our Facebook page, on our website, faithonhill.com. Uh, Audio-only versions are available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You just have to search Faith on Hill. And then you can also get all of the online content that we put up, our 20-minute Bible study podcast, uh, our Starting Points podcast, and our Talk About Anything podcast, in addition to our Sunday mornings. Last week, we were audio-only, so if you were just on the audio feeds, you didn't notice, but uh, the video folks were like, wait, where's, uh, where's the video? You know, when I was a kid, we used to watch these uh, Godzilla movies, and uh, I loved them, these Japanese movies, and they were dubbed into English, and the dubs were never quite right, and so sometimes somebody would keep talking, but in English it was done, and then sometimes they would say like two words in Japanese, but it would need like ten words in English to explain it. I love that. It kind of looked like that, and so I just decided, you know, let's just go audio only, um, because I didn't feel like having that distraction. Hopefully we're all back and good. We're going to finish up Matthew chapter 19 this morning, and when I was in uh, Bible college in my undergrad and master's level work, I would take these preaching classes, and I would chuckle sometimes because, you know, sometimes the Bible doesn't fit neatly into a way of, like, preparing a series of sermons. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 13, says, Then people brought the little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and to pray for them, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went from there. Now you might recall a few chapters back, we had a very similar story. People were trying to bring their children to Jesus. But the disciples were like, these, these kids are annoying us. And they were trying to find out from Jesus who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus takes one of the little children and he places them in front of him. And he says, you actually have to become like one of these little children. Like one of the children that you don't want to be around to become the greatest of the kingdom of heaven. What's encouraging to me is that the disciples haven't learned their lesson. Now, you might say, Adam, are you taking joy at the failure of others? No, I don't think it's that simple. It's encouraging to me because it tells me that all of us are works in progress. The disciples had had this lesson taught to them about humbling themselves, becoming like little children so that they could become people of the kingdom of heaven. And yet, when it came time for people bringing their children so that Jesus could bless them, the disciples just failed miserably. They still had lessons to learn, and that is greatly encouraging to me. Now, the main thing that, the main point, the main idea we want to get at is actually this next part of the chapter, where it says that just then, right as this happens, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Now, we as modern and, and probably likely Gentile people will miss something here. He comes and he says, teacher. Now, some translations say 
good teacher. In this translation, they just choose to go with teacher. What good thing must I do to enter eternal life? What, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. There is only one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord your God is one. As I understand it, what Jesus is doing is saying, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good, God. And so what he is identifying himself as, he's, he's beginning. Remember, we said last week that Jesus has left the Galilee and he is now heading towards Jerusalem to go to Jerusalem and enter and declare himself publicly as the Messiah. And now he is beginning to declare himself openly, God in human flesh. But then he says, if you want to enter, keep the commands. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, because we have read all of this, we have an understanding of his internal situation. The issue for him was his wealth. But at the beginning of this, right, he comes and he says, what must I do to enter eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he lists them and he says, I've kept all of these. And you could imagine that there were people who were wondering, why is this person asking what he needs to do to get into heaven? If he really has kept all of these commands, if he really has done all of these things, or we should say in some ways not done all, any of these things, if he has really been a person who has not been a liar, if he really has been a person who has honored his father and mother, if he's been a person who's been a faithful person, not a violent person, a truthful person, he has loved his neighbor as himself, he's been a loving person, wouldn't that reputation precede him? We're told that he's a wealthy person. The, another gospel tells us that he was a ruler. So he is a powerful person. And if you can be rich and powerful and still be loving and generous and honest and honoring, oh my goodness, you're the total package. Certainly somebody wondered, what if this guy can't get in, who can? But this young man knew that something was missing. Can I be honest with you right now? There are people who live their entire lives thinking that they lack for nothing, thinking that everything is about as good as you could expect it to be. This man knew that something was wrong. I'm actually convinced that more people know that something is wrong than let on. I'm convinced one of the reasons that we have a go, go, go culture is because we are terrified of silence. We are terrified of silence. If we stop, 
then our own thoughts will catch up with us. If for 10 minutes we don't do anything, if for 10 minutes we don't have something on in the background, then our own thoughts and fears and concerns and questions will come to the forefront. Think about it. There are people who just from the word go have something happening. They never have silence, ever. In the car, something's going on. You know, they're cooking dinner. I've heard about people who cook dinner and they always have the office playing in the background. Uh, I mean, they, 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 there's just, you know, we're sitting down, we're going, we're moving, we're happening. There's a podcast, there's music, something's streaming. We're doing something. Even if there isn't some media being consumed, maybe we're just going, going, going. We have this event, we have that event. We have to stay busy. And I think that there is at least something. I'm not saying it's all of it, but I'm suggesting that there is something to this idea that we cannot be alone with ourselves unless we find out that, like this young man, we know that something is missing. What do I still lack? Something isn't working. What is it that you think you want? All the money in the world? All the success in the world? All the power in the world? How many people have achieved their dream only to find it it meaningless? Alexander wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. If you don't know that quote, it's referring to Alexander the Great, the greatest conqueror the world has ever known. And when he conquered what he thought was the extent of the world, he drank himself to death. There there was a, a CFO, one of the most successful men in America, Tragically, I do not say this to make light at all, but just a few weeks ago, jumped out of a building in in the middle of Manhattan. He was about as successful as you could get. Had the money, had the success. He's gone. You hear, you you think, oh, you know, my life would be so much better if I had a better spouse. And then you, 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 I, or if I had a career or success, and then you see the, the famous and the movie star or whoever, and you think, oh, they must have a perfect life. And then they're just having, you know, affairs, and they're cheating, and, and me- horribly messy divorces, and you just go, oh, well, that's not working. What do I lack? So Jesus says, if you want to enter eternal life, keep the commands. He says, which ones? And so Jesus says, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. You might recognize these. These are from the Ten Commandments. Now, it's a fair question to ask. Who in our day could say they have kept these commands? Especially, especially with Jesus' teaching that says that it's not just I've done murder anybody, but Jesus said if you have hate in your heart towards somebody, it's the same as having murdered them. Who can say that they've kept these? And yet, this young man says, I have kept all of these. What do I still lack? There's two interesting things to note here. Jesus does not challenge him on this, and this young man still 
feels like it's not enough. You could be the most religious person, the most disciplined person, the most moral person there is, and still feel like it's not enough. There are podcasts today that are devoted to extreme discipline. You know, I, I think about, uh, I think that guy's name is Goggins. He's, he's been on like Rogan and, and stuff, you know, and he's just like this guy who's just like, I'm, I'm going to like do all these extreme physical activities uh, for the whole purpose of just being constantly disciplined in my life and in my health and, and everything about what I do. I get up, I, I go to bed early, I get up early, I go to bed early, I get up early, I run, I, I restrict what I eat, I'm all of these things. And it's interesting, you know, somebody made a point uh, about, uh, was it Jordan Peterson's, like, you know, 10 rules for life, and then it's like, yeah, he's miserable. <laughs> he always seems unhappy. He had to go, you know, he had, he had issues, he was abusing substances. Things weren't working out for him. And I'm not trying to make statements one way or the other about a person, you know, I'm just saying, no matter how disciplined, no matter how moral you are, no matter how uh, holy living you are, it seems like it wasn't enough. What's also interesting here is that all of these rules in the Ten Commandments are the ones that you can publicly verify. That's interesting, too. These are the ones that you can publicly verify. You know, I, have you murdered somebody? No, have not done that. Have you committed adultery? I mean, obviously, like, you could secretly murder somebody. There's plenty of people that have secret... I mean, adultery is usually a secret thing. But in the sense of, like, you can, you can prove these things one way or the other publicly. You know, uh, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Meaning, don't want what's not yours. Okay? Um, how are you going to prove that? How are you going to prove that in my heart, I look over and say, hey... I've got a silver car, but my neighbor's got a red car, and I'm coveting my neighbor's red car. Actually, I don't. I like my car, but you know what I mean. Like, how are you going to prove that? These are all external things. But he's saying, yeah, I've done those things. Jesus doesn't question him. He says, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Is that what it takes to get into heaven? Do I need to sell everything I have, give it to the poor, and live as some sort of monk living in a vow of poverty, and that's what gets me into heaven? Is that what the Christian faith teaches? No. The key word is follow me, is follow Jesus. There are people throughout the history of the Christian faith who God has called to sell everything and give it to the poor. There was a man named Barnabas, one of the first Christians, who sold everything and then devoted his whole life to serving God. But there's also others. There's a, a fellow named Zacchaeus who sold half of everything. And Jesus said, hey, that's great. And then there are others who had great wealth and who never sold everything. They just took their wealth and they used it as they could to help people. But they didn't sell anything and God didn't seem to have an issue with that. I've known people who are incredibly wealthy and incredibly generous. I've known people who, who have a little bit of money who are incredibly ungenerous. So, you know, the point is about following, right? Jesus is saying, will you follow me? Will you give up everything? It makes me think of Abraham back in the book of Genesis. Abraham had a son, Isaac. 
And God spoke to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac, your son, your only son, whom you love, and I want you to take him three days' journey to the mountain I will show you. And on that mountain, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. There is no tradition of human sacrifice anywhere in biblical history. Nowhere up to that point had God asked any of his followers to practice such things. In fact, all throughout the Bible, human sacrifice is treated as a terrible, terrible sin. But God said to Abraham, take your son and sacrifice him. So Abraham, in obedience, got all the supplies together, said, son, we're we're going. And they traveled three days' journey, and they got to the base of the mountain. And as they got to the base of the mountain, he said to his servants, stay here, the boy and I will go up. And I say the boy, it sounds like it's child sacrifice. Uh, Most people think he was somewhere between 16 and and his early 20s. And Abraham was probably old. His father was probably in his older years. So this kid could have overpowered him. And on the way up the mountain, Isaac said to his father, where's the ram that we're going to sacrifice? And he said, God will provide the sacrifice. He had great faith. The New Testament tells us that he believed that God was just going to do something. Maybe he was going to raise Isaac from the dead. Uh, Maybe you know, God was just going to like miraculously provide something. He didn't know, but he had great faith. And so they got up there and he bound Isaac and he placed him on the altar that they built and he got the knife to kill his son. And again, not child sacrifice. This is the thing that frustrates me with uh, church like kids' curriculum. Like I've seen coloring sheets where they, de- they depict like a little kid on this altar. And it's like, that's not what the Bible says. If you read it and you read kind of the, the, the whole book of Genesis, you can see that Isaac was somewhere between 16 years old and in his early 20s. He could have fought back. He went willingly. And as Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, a voice said, stop. Do not harm the boy. And they looked over, and a ram had its horns caught in the thicket nearby. And he cut the boy free, and they took the ram, and they sacrificed it there to the Lord. And the Lord said, I needed to see, because there was a covenant going on. I needed to ask you to be willing to give up everything, and now I will give up everything. And God gave up his son, the father gave up his son. And it's believed that the same hill, we would call it a hill, they would call it a mountain, that Abraham and Isaac went to is the same hill that Jesus was crucified on. Willingly, the son willingly going, the father willingly sending as a sacrifice his only son whom he loves for our salvation. Jesus, who was willing to give up everything for this young man. Jesus, who was on his way to Jerusalem to give up everything to save this young man, says, will you give up everything to follow me? And he would not. It says he went away sad because he had great wealth. He was sad because he knew the truth. He was sad because he knew that there was still that lack 
that thing missing in his life. He was sad because he did not have assurance of salvation. He was sad because he could not give up. He could not let go. The Bible says that those who wish to save their life will lose it, but those who lose their life will find it. He wasn't willing to lose everything to gain eternal life. Then Jesus said to his disciples, verse 23, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. Do you own a car? Do you own a car? If you do, you are one of the 5% wealthiest people in the world. If you own a car, you are one of the 5% richest people in the world. You living in America are one of the luckiest people alive. I read a book years ago. It's a fantastic book called Nothing to Envy. The Ordinary Lives of North Koreans. And in the book, there's a story of someone who defected, who escaped North Korea. And he said that they would show propaganda on North Korean TV. And it showed people who were supposedly poor and, and you know, not treated well in South Korea. And he noted that the people who were uh, protesting, uh, you know, like union workers on strike, he said he noticed that they were, had the freedom to protest their boss, and they all looked well-fed. They weren't starving like the North Koreans were, even the elites. And they all had nicer clothes than he did, and he was the son of an elite in Pyongyang. What I'm saying is this, that, that even some of the people in, in, you know, rough circumstances have it better than people in what we might even call elite circles in other countries. You know, um, I, I had family members when I was a kid who were on, like, welfare and in some, in some rough kind of circumstances. And looking back, you know, I, I've, I've been to other countries where there's great poverty, and I can see now that as, as rough as their circumstances were, they had it infinitely better than the poverty that I've seen in other places. What I'm getting at is this. If you're an American, Jesus is talking about us. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for an American who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples then heard this, they were greatly astonished and say, what American can be saved? With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. You know, I believe right now that there are people who are losing faith. Not for themselves. They believe in God. Not in God. We believe that Jesus is real and that God has saved us and that God loves us and that God is working in us. We're losing faith in the idea that other people can become Christians. Because I think we're looking at people. I think we're looking at people too much. And we have to look at God more and more and more. With God, everything is possible. 
So then Peter chimes in, because that's what Peter does. If you've ever read the Gospels, that's what Peter does. And he says, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. What Jesus is saying to Peter is this. This world is fading away. And following Jesus in this life has a cost. It is speculated, it is, it is thought that the Apostle Paul had been married and that his wife left him because of his conversion to Christianity. Every one of the disciples, other than John, were killed, martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. And John, the only one who wasn't, lived a life of suffering and persecution. Somebody asked me recently, and I understood exactly what he meant. Somebody asked me recently, hey, when we were growing up back in the day, in the 90s and the 2000s, there was a lot of talk and even like Christian songs and Christian movies about like, you know, you're going to have to make a choice someday. Either, you know, renounce Jesus or we'll kill you. And those same people, those same people seem to whine and complain about anything that even strikes about persecution. And my thought is this. We talked a lot about dying for Jesus. We didn't talk a lot about being uncomfortable for Jesus. We didn't talk a lot about low-grade persecution for Jesus. There are people who have divisions within family. To follow Jesus means that you have a brother that doesn't talk to you. I have friends like that. That they don't talk to their family members, not because they don't want to, not because they don't love them, but because they have friends or family members who have cut them off. Because they love Jesus, because they will not do anything other than what God wants. They have had friends who cut them off. We've left everything to follow you. I know people who have had opportunities to do, you know, promotions, this, that, but the cost would be doing something that would be opposed to what God would want. And so they've said, thank you, but no thank you. I can't do that. And they've lost out because of it. And what Jesus is telling them and encouraging them is he is saying it is worth it. The rich young man walked away sad because he had great wealth and he could not give it up to follow Jesus. Be to gain eternal life, he was not willing to give up everything in this life. As many faults and flaws and as many times as Peter and the other guys get it wrong, what they got right is the thing that mattered most. They gave up everything to follow Jesus. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Think about the people who are most important in this world right now. In eternity, in the grand scheme of things, they will not matter. And I don't mean that to be smug or rude or imperious or whatever. I'm just saying that to say that Jesus is what is important. And this world around us has put up this fantasy of what matters. What matters is the truth 
that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What matters is the truth that God loves us. What matters is the truth is that Jesus died to pay the price, the justice that my sins deserve. What matters is the truth that Jesus rose three days later and has conquered sin and death. What matters is the truth that at the renewal of all things, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And it costs something right now. I don't know what that is for you. I suspect it's different for every person, and it's different in every age and every era. But whatever it is, it costs something to follow Jesus, and it's worth it. It's worth it. What's not worth it is walking away sad because of that thing, that great wealth of something. Maybe it's money, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's a relationship. I'll tell you, I've seen more people in the last 10 years walk away from God because of a relationship than because of wealth. I've seen more people walk away from God because of politics, both right and left, than because of wealth. I've seen more people walk away from God because of career than because of wealth. I mean, you may not even be making a lot of money in that career. It's just, you know, personal whatever. It costs something and it's worth it. You could be the most moral person and still know that you lack something. You could be the wealthiest person and still know that you lack something. You could have youth on your side and still know that you lack something. But there will come a time when the fantasy will end, when reality will set in, when Jesus will sit on his glorious throne and we will be like the little children brought to him and he will bless us. I believe that firmly. And even if no one else around me does, that's where I want to be. And that's the invitation. Let's be there. Let's be where Jesus is.